Good morning. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for an opportunity to gather this morning and to uh, consider uh, your uh, works throughout history that, uh, that you haven't ceased to work with uh, the apostles or with your son, but uh, in some sense you're still working. You're working through your spirit and through the scripture and, uh, and through the church. And so we're grateful for an opportunity for us to uh, dive in and consider uh, those realities uh, to see how your providence and sovereignty has worked out in history. And so pray that you would bless us this morning, that you would prepare our hearts to, uh, to consider and, uh, and to be challenged and convicted and uh, encouraged and all those things. We're grateful you're a good father who gives good gifts. And so we pray for your help in Christ's name. Amen. Is there a whole lot of feedback? It's great. Sorry about that. Thanks for coming, in spite of our uh, technical difficulties. Uh, this year we're talking about church history, and, uh, and so if you haven't uh, been with us, uh, we've already dealt with the early church and the various Trinitarian and Christological uh, heresies and the response of the church in creeds and councils and confessions uh, and so forth. We've talked the Middle Ages. We've talked about the growth of this reality called the Holy Roman Empire and the, the papacy and their struggle for authority. We've talked about the Reformation. Uh, we've talked about uh, the movement of uh, Christianity into America in the colonies and then ultimately as, uh, as America becomes its own country. And we're kind of now in the modern period. And, uh, and so what we're going to be talking about today is this modern Christian movement that we call evangelicalism. And so we want to talk about evangelicalism by really discussing uh, a few main questions. Number one, what is evangelicalism? So we'll give kind of a description of that. Number two, what is the history of the usage of the term evangelical? Number three, what are the major evangelical organizations and leaders? And then lastly, what are the challenges critiques facing evangelicalism and then growing out of that? Is this a term that we should just completely reject and discard uh, today in light of those uh, challenges? That's what we're going to talk about. We'll start with what is evangelicalism. Think about all of the words that you know that end with uh, ism, all right? Protestantism, Calvinism, postmodernism, or evangelicalism. All of those uh, re refer to that, that, that suffix ism relates to some sort of distinctive movement with these common attributes. So Protestantism obviously describes the Protestant movement. There is something, there is a similarity that exists within Protestantism. Likewise with Calvinism, when we talk about Calvinism, we're we're talking about the system that is associated with the theology of John Calvin. Uh, postmodernism, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, describes the prevalence of postmodern philosophical uh, assumptions within culture. So evangelicalism, likewise, is going to be a movement that's associated with evangelicals, whatever that means. The problem, as we'll talk about when we talk about the history of this term evangelical uh, is, uh, is that the meaning of the term evangelical is going to change over time. In other words, what the term means, what evangelical means, depends on when we mean. Do we mean evangelical as it was used in the 16th century? 
or the 17th, or the 18th, or the 19th, or the 20th, or even today. We'll talk about that because all of those are different. But that makes defining evangelicalism as this uh, movement, it makes that all the more difficult. In fact, there is no common, uh, commonly accepted definition of evangelical or evangelicalism. Here's what Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary, he says. He says, the challenge of defining evangelical identity remains one of the most important challenges for the movement, and one that entails no small amount of controversy. This much is clear. There is no way for any responsible evangelical to avoid this challenge. To do so is to consign the word to eventual meaningless, uh, meaninglessness and to deny evangelicals the right and responsibility to define themselves in theological terms. That is far too high price uh, to pay. So here's why uh, defining the movement is difficult, not only because the the usage of that term is going to change over time, but also because uh, anywhere from 1% to 50% of the U.S. population is identified as evangelical. For example, when you ask people to self-identify on polls and surveys and so forth, when you ask people to self-identify as to whether or not they are evangelical or whether or not they have been, quote-unquote, born again, almost 50% of the U.S. population will say yes. This reminds me of a, of a story about my, uh, my dad's adoptive father. I was sitting around, I was talking to him um, uh, about a year or so before he died, right before I, was, uh, before I started seminary. And he was telling me about his, he wanted to take me to Israel, and he was telling me about his conversion experience, quote-unquote. He said that he was out in the woods all alone, and all of a sudden he felt this extreme rush of power course through him. And he said he was absolutely certain in that moment he could have grabbed a tree and just uprooted it if he would have wanted to. And that was his conversion. That was what he described as being born again. There's no mention of Jesus No mention of him recognizing in that moment that he is sinful and that God is gracious. His life didn't fundamentally change after this experience. He didn't go to church regularly. He didn't read his Bible regularly. He didn't pray consistently. Yet in his moment, because he had this uh, feeling of power or something, then he was born again. And about 50% of the population kind of has a somewhat similar story. They claim to be evangelical, but when you then start to ask questions about their beliefs and about their behaviors, that number from 50% begins to uh, drastically decrease. I even saw a, a, a particular study where they asked this initial question about whether or not someone had been born again, and the proportion of those who said yes to that question was about, uh, I think, 45%. But then they asked these follow-up questions about their various behaviors, such as, do you regularly attend church? Do you regularly, re- regularly read the Bible? Or they ask these other questions about their worldview. Do you believe that abortion is a sin? Or whatever it might be. And the number then, who actually seem to act and think like an evangelical, dropped from 45% down to 1%. All right? That's a huge chasm between self-identification and then actual qualification to use that term. So sociologists... Have, uh, have struggled to come up with a consistent definition or description for who or what an evangelical is. But in general, today, most people follow the formula suggested by a historian named David Bebbington. His definition of an evangelical even bears his name. It's called the Bebbington Quadrilateral because there are four key beliefs 
of contemporary evangelicals according to Babington. These, these four essentials. You are an evangelical if you agree with these four things. The first one is biblicism. That in order to be a, an evangelical, there has to be this high regard for the Bible as the supreme religious authority. So you'll see these words like inerrancy and so forth uh, associated with this. The second attribute is crucicentrism. Crusa uh, obviously is from the same word as, as crucify, and so it means uh, cross. So there's this cross-centeredness. There's this focus uh, on Jesus' crucifixion and its saving effects and saying that's the heart of uh, true religion. That's the heart of Christianity, the gospel, so forth. The third characteristic is conversionism, a belief that humans need to be converted, that humans need to be born uh, again. Uh, that's associated with kind of the historic view of the church, which is that humanity is born sinful. In fact, we are totally depraved, and so we need to be converted. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. We need to have our heart of stone replaced with a heart of Flesh. So that's the third uh, attribute, conversionism. And then fourth is activism, which is the belief that your faith should influence your public life. It should influence uh, the way that you think about society and culture and so forth. And so this quadrilateral has been so influential that even the National Association of Evangelicals uses it in answering the question, what is an evangelical? If you go to their website uh, and then you look, click on the about section, what is an evangelical, they will use uh, Bebbington's quadrilateral. So based on this formula, an evangelical would be anyone who's, who would agree with four things. Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. Again, this is uh, a corresponding view of the inerrancy of Scripture. It should also presuppose the sufficiency of Scripture. Unfortunately, that isn't always the case. In the late 20th century, we've talked about this before, there was this huge fight um, within culture, uh, within Christian culture, over the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. So, for instance, the SBC in 1978 began to really uh, rethink the liberal drift of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, over the issue of the inerrancy and authority of Scripture. So, that was the late uh, 20th century. Today, most evangelicals would absolutely agree with the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. But where the enemy kind of sneaks in is through the issue of the sufficiency of Scripture. It does no good to say Scripture is inerrant and Scripture is authoritative if you don't think that it is sufficient. And uh, so that's a, a problem in evangelicalism today. But that's the first uh, thing. An, an evangelical would say that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe, and along with that, this corresponding view of inerrancy. Second, an evangelical would say, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. In other words, there is this evangelical or evangelistic zeal that marks evangelicalism. Why? Because evangelicalism historically is exclusive, which is evidence from the next point. The third thing an evangelical would say, Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. Not my own works, not my good behavior, not anything else other than Christ's sacrifice. And then fourth, only those who trust in Christ alone receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. So that's what an evangelical is. In other words, an evangelical is very much a theological designation rather than a political affiliation. Notice, none of the things that, quote, makes one an evangelical has to do with politics. One's, uh, one's worldview, one's theology certainly affects their politics, 
But evangelical is not a political designation. It's a theological identification. What unites evangelicals is neither age, nor geography, nor ethnicity, nor socioeconomic status, nor even political party. It's doctrine, it's theology, it's belief. As D.A. Carson notes, an evangelical at his best is a person who believes the good news found in the New Testament that God has sent his son to die on the cross and rise from the dead, ascend to glory, seated at the right hand of God, coming at the end of the age to redeem his image bearers from their sin, their condemnation, pouring upon them his spirit to justify them, sanctify them, and one day glorify them in perfection. It's all the good news of what God has done And this demands a response of obedience, repentance, faith. Or another quote by by John Stott, who's no longer with us. uh, But he wrote, An evangelical is a plain, ordinary Christian. We stand in the mainstream of historic, orthodox, biblical Christianity, so we can recite the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed without crossing our fingers. We believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit. Having said that, there are two particular things we like to emphasize the concern for authority on the one hand and salvation on the other. For evangelical people, our authority is the God who has spoken supremely in Jesus Christ, and that is equally true of redemption or salvation. God has acted in and through Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners. What God has said in Christ and in the biblical witness to Christ and what God has done in and through Christ are both, to use the Greek word uh, hapax, meaning once and for all. There's a finality about God's word in Christ, and there's a finality about God's work in Christ. To imagine that we could add a word to his word or add a work to his work is extremely derogatory to the unique glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what uh, both Carson and Stott are, are doing is saying that evangelical theology at its best is basically just Christian theology. And yet we know that lots of people who call themselves Christian don't share those convictions. In particular, um, a lot of Catholics wouldn't. Uh, Those who are committed to theological uh, liberalism wouldn't. So Stott is actually going to provide a a helpful diagnostic, these two diagnostic questions, to distinguish between these three groups. Uh, Within American Christianity, the three kind of main groups are evangelical, theological, liberal, and then uh, Catholic. And so he asked these two questions. Number one, by what authority to believe, uh, do we believe what we believe? And he distinguishes between these three groups. And he says Catholics are going to emphasize the church, the magisterium, uh, which is uh, the kind of the official teaching tradition of the church, and the role of tradition. That's what Catholics are going to emphasize to answer the question, by what authority do we believe what we believe? Liberals, those who are theologically liberal, will emphasize reason, conscience, and experience. Evangelicals, on the other hand, they certainly recognize tradition and reason are authoritative, but they're subordinate authorities to the only supreme authority, which is Scripture. Or to the question, how can I, a lost and guilty sinner, how can I stand before a just and holy God? Catholics are going to emphasize the priesthood. They're going to emphasize the sacraments as being necessary to mediate salvation between God and us. Those who are theologically liberal are going to emphasize good works, individual and social righteousness, uh, those at least contributing to our salvation, whereas evangelicals are going to affirm ministry, they're going to affirm the ordinances, they're going to affirm the importance of good works, but they're going to say our focus, our hope is in the cross, what God has done for us in Christ. That is ultimately our ground of assurance. 
And so that's the meaning of, uh, of evangelical, at least theologically, uh, today, but that's not always been the meaning. So let's talk about the history of the term evangelical. As mentioned before, one of the things that makes kind of defining evangelicalism and defining an evangelical uh, difficult is the fact that the meanings of the term have, uh, has changed dramatically over time. And that's not uh, all that uncommon, right? Linguists call this semantic shift. Uh, think of how the word gay functions today versus how it might have functioned 100 years ago or something uh, different. Or consider, we've used this uh, example before, the word nice. The word nice originally meant a foolish or ignorant person. Uh, and the word uh, guy, if you use the word guy, G-U-Y, that word originally referred to someone who was grotesque in appearance. Now think about if your friends set you up on a blind date with a nice guy. <laughs> All right, do they mean I'm setting you up with an ugly moron? Hopefully not, right? That's not, those words no longer mean that, all right? That's called semantic shift. The meaning of words change over time. By the way, this is why uh, English translations of the Bible and so forth change over time. Why it's uh, silly to be uh, in the cult of King James only or something like that. A lot has changed in the English language since 1611. Uh, for instance, the King James Version refers to unicorns. That's what they called rhinoceroses. And, uh, and so... Anyway, the meaning of words change over time, and sometimes that change uh, is, uh, is evident in the denotation, but other times it's just the connotation. In case you forget the difference between those, you haven't taken high school English in a while. Denotation refers to the, uh, the actual definition of the word, the literal definition of the word, whereas connotation re refers to the ideas or the feelings that the word evokes in addition to its literal meaning. For instance, think of the words slender and bony, right? Denotatively, they kind of mean the same thing, but I would imagine your wife wouldn't like to be called bony or gaunt or something. She might like to be called slender though, right? Um, and so the way we feel about those terms is different, even if they might be synonymous if you're at thesaurus.com. So likewise, when it comes to evangelicalism, we'll see that even though the literal definition, the denotation, has remained rather constant over the years, the connotation of the term has changed. We saw a similar phenomenon when we talked about the word fundamentalism. The denotation of the word fundamentalism has always referred to the fundamentals. That is the foundational truths of the gospel but the connotation associated with the word uh, fundamentalism has dramatically changed. The feeling associated with that term has become progressively distorted such that today it evokes the image of someone who is anti-intellectual, anti-cultural, etc. Someone who hates Billy Graham, someone who hates alcohol, someone who hates dancing and playing cards and quote-unquote secular music. 100 years ago, Nearly every single theologically conservative American would proudly call themselves uh, a fundamentalist, but today, the overwhelming majority of Orthodox Christians would not really embrace that term because of these negative connotations that has happened. So a similar connotation shift applies to evangelicalism, uh, and so what we mean by evangelical depends on when we're talking about. In particular, we want to talk about four distinct periods in the use of the term evangelical. The first is the Reformation, next is the First Great Awakening, then the uh, 1940s, and finally the 1970s. We'll start with the Reformation. 
Anybody, what's the, uh, what's the etymology? What's the derivation of the word evangelical? Yeah, evangel, which means the euangelion, which means uh, the gospel, right? It's uh, evangelical is the transliteration of the Greek euangelion, which means good news, the gospel. So that's the derivation of the term. Evangelical originally just meant of or relating to the gospel. And as best scholars can tell, Martin Luther was actually the first person to use the term evangelical or evangelisch in, uh, in German to describe something besides the good news itself, all right? How did he use it at the time? He used it synonymous with what we would today uh, know as Protestant. That's what uh, he meant. When, when Luther said uh, evangelisch, evangelical, he just meant Protestant. That's what the word denoted and, and connoted in his time. In fact, it was actually Luther's enemies who deridingly called his followers Lutheran. Luther himself didn't say, I want my followers to be called Lutheran. He preferred to call them evangelical. So evangelical during the 16th century basically just referred to anyone who was not Catholic. Non-Catholic churches, non-Catholic persons and so forth. In that time and place, all European, Western European Christians wore one of two hats. You were either Catholic or you were evangelical. And at this time though, Uh, It was used as an adjective. It wasn't used as a noun. So you had evangelical churches, you had evangelical believers, but no one referred to evangelicals as a noun for uh, for quite some time. Let's fast forward a couple of centuries. Uh, We'll get to the 18th and 19th centuries. One of the first instances of the use of evangelicals as being a noun came in 1807 when the British writer, uh, when a British writer referred to the followers of the late George Whitfield as evangelicals. That was really uncommon. He did it, but it was really a, another hundred years before that became standard practice for calling people uh, evangelical as a noun. But what made someone evangelical in the 18th and 19th centuries? Well, it wasn't merely synonymous with Protestant as it had been in the Reformation. We'll see there is this added nuance that is associated uh, with it. And you see that first come up in the First Great Awakening. We talked about the First Great Awakening uh, a few weeks back. We mentioned the fact that there was a large controversy over the degree to which conversion and revival should be uh, stressed in preaching. Some preachers, many preachers in fact, thought that as long as you lived a basically moral life, you could be a member of the church, you could take communion, you could feel pretty good about yourself. But the leaders of the the awakening, guys like uh, John Edwards and John Wesley and George Whitfield, other leaders of the awakening thought that it was necessary for you to be converted. And therefore, it's necessary for churches to preach regeneration. And thus, it's necessary for there to be revival. They thought that the revival was necessary because even though in that time the pews were full, people's hearts weren't full. People's hearts weren't aflame with, to use Edwards' terms, religious affections. So evangelical was used in this particular period to describe not just all Protestants in general, but a subset. In particular, the type of Protestant who agrees with revivalism, as opposed to forms of preaching that uh, assume that church members were Christians simply because of their attendance or their upbringing or whatever it might be. So as we move from the first awakening in the mid-1700s to the second awakening in the 1800s, the use of the word evangelical began to be used rather universally in this sense, in this sense of 
being uh, in favor of regeneration and revivalism and so forth. And by the mid-19th century, this was by far the dominant expression of Christianity in the U.S., right? As America is expanding, is expanding south, is, is expanding west in the 19th century, by and large, the religion that was carried forth was evangelical religion, And that makes sense because it's carried on the wings of revival. And so obviously the form of religion that's going to be moving or the form of Christianity that's going to be moving is going to be revivalistic, which is evangelistic. So in the 1850s, a guy named William Marsh, he described an evangelical believer as, quote, a man who believes in the fall and its consequences, in the recovery and its fruits, and the personal application of the recovery by the power of the Spirit of God, And then the Christian will aim, desire, endeavor by example, by exertion, by influence, and by prayer to promote the great salvation of which he himself is a happy partaker. So you see there, personal application, the language of personal application. What he's talking about there is regeneration. And then he talks about the promotion of salvation in others. That's uh, That's evangelism. That's revivalism. So bottom line, in the Reformation to be evangelical just meant to be non catholic in the 18th and 19th centuries in America, though, it meant to be born again or to, to at least agree that people must be born again in order to enter the kingdom. But we'll see the meaning of that term begins to even more dramatically shift in the 20th century, and it refers to an even more specific subgroup of the population. So let's talk about the connotation of the term in the early to mid uh, 20th century. To do that, we need to remember a little bit of what was happening in American Christianity at the time, in the early 20th century. To put it mildly, we've talked about this before, it was a train wreck, right? Multiple generations of seminaries, uh, multiple uh, generations uh, in the elite academic uh, institutions of America, multiple generations had been trained on Enlightenment ideals in general and in uh, liberal theology in particular. So we need to just kind of briefly recap theological liberalism because you can't really understand evangelicalism, which is in many ways a reaction to liberalism, without understanding liberalism itself. So what is liberal theology? Zach talked about this a few weeks back. He gave this definition, which I think is helpful. He says, fundamentally, it is the idea of a genuine Christianity not based on external authority. Liberal theology seeks to reinterpret the symbols of Christianity in a way that creates a progressive religious alternative to atheistic rationalism and to theologies based on external authority. Specifically, liberal theology is defined by its openness to the verdicts of modern intellectual inquiry, especially the natural and social sciences, its commitment to the authority of individual reason and experience, its conception of Christianity as an ethical way of life, its favoring of moral concepts of atonement, and its commitment to make Christianity credible and socially relevant to modern people. So whereas historic Orthodox Christianity is going to focus on truth and doctrine and flowing out of that, you have things like social work and and that kind of stuff. Uh, Whereas uh, historic uh, Christian uh, Orthodoxy focused on truth and doctrine, liberal theology instead tends to focus on morality and feelings and social work and personal experience. And therein lies the problem with liberalism. It replaces all of the traditional authorities of Christianity like the Bible and the creeds and confessions and tradition, it replaces all of those traditional authorities of Christianity with the enlightenment ideals of human rationality and experience 
And thus it kind of removes all the supernatural parts of Christianity. Right? It, it takes all of the focus from being an, an external outward authorities and it puts all of the authority inward. Your reason, your emotion, your feelings, your self. All right. So liberalism wants to kind of retain the language, the concepts of Christianity, but it wants to reinterpret those concepts. It wants to equivocate on that language. The idea, uh, according to liberalism, theological liberalism, is that Christianity must adapt if it will survive. So it has to adapt its conception of God. That's why you see in, in uh, liberal theology there is this uh, soft, softening or even denial of the Trinity, and you see this rise in Unitarianism. Uh, there must be a rethinking of the atonement. There's a rejection of penal substitution. Christ's death, they say, was just an example of God's love. It's not a satisfaction of God's wrath, because to the liberal theologian, God is not wrathful. He's only love. There's this downplaying of the exclusivity of the gospel and the Christian faith. There's this openness to multiple paths to heaven. There's this denial of the inerrancy of Scripture. And the gospel isn't about Christ's righteousness being imputed to depraved mankind, but rather it's about moralism. It's about social work. So Christianity is no longer something that you just receive and believe. According to liberalism, Christianity is much more something that you do. All right, so you can see how this isn't some minor debate about secondary issues, ecclesiology or eschatology or something. This is really a fight for Christianity itself, and that's theological liberalism. To make things worse, in the early 20th century, in addition to theological liberalism related to it also, there was also this growing tendency towards naturalism in culture. In other words, they looked at life and reality in more and more they said, I can explain what's happening without any reference to God whatsoever. For example, we no longer need the, quote, creation myth because our prophet, Darwin, has revealed to us this naturalistic explanation of evolutionary theory and the survival of the fittest. And so that collision of theological liberalism and philosophical naturalism is what was called modernism. And by the late 19th, early 20th century, those modernistic assumptions had taken over most denominations and most seminaries in the U.S. It was kind of the assumed form of Christianity in the institutions. What's interesting, though, is that wasn't as well reflected in the general populace. It's kind of like politics uh, today, right? You have the academic elite, and they hold these certain presuppositions, these certain positions that aren't nearly as popular if you go to the flyover states, you know, you go to Kansas or something, and they're probably not going to be agreeing with the Yale grad or the Princeton grad or something like that. And so likewise, in the early 20th century, most seminaries were liberal. People with high, in higher education were liberal, but most of your average Christians were not. And there were various reactions or responses to modernism in the early 20th centuries. Uh, one of those Zach talked about last week or two weeks ago uh, in what is called neo-orthodoxy, which was led by guys like Karl Barth, who disagreed with liberal theology, but rather than going all the way back to uh, conservative, historical, traditional orthodoxy, he just redefined uh, many of the historic orthodox beliefs in a way that was better than theological liberalism, but not great. 
Others, so that was one response, others responded to liberalism not by redefining historical theology like neo-orthodoxy, but rather by embracing historic orthodox traditional Christianity, all right? By saying that what we need isn't to adapt Christianity, rather we just need to adopt Christianity. This response was originally called fundamentalism because it was about the fundamentals of the faith. But over time, as we talked about with the fundamentalist movement, it fractured into two groups because fundamentalism more and more began to take on these negative connotations. This was especially the case, uh, as we talked about with the Scopes monkey trial, as it was called, where um, at least on the surface, it seems like evolution is put on trial. But in reality, what was happening culturally was creationism and fundamentalism and Christianity was kind of put on trial over the issue of macroevolution. And so fundamentalists like William Jennings Bryan were caricatured as ignorant, as backwoods, as dim-witted. And their response, the response of fundamentalists by and large uh, to their shame, I think, was to generally just kind of retreat, to remove themselves from the public domain. They, they kind of developed this insular uh, response. They became increasingly pessimistic and skeptical of society and their place in it. They formed their own denominations, their own churches, their own colleges, etc. And they just kind of circled the wagons, wait for Jesus to return. They kind of took their ball and went home. So fundamentalism was one half of the theologically conservative response to liberalism. The other response was evangelicalism, which was a later offshoot it was a critique from within the fundamentalist movement that eventually fractured and became its own movement. It wanted to retain all of the fundamentalist conservative theology, but it wanted to reject all of uh, fundamentalism's pessimism towards society and its insularity, circling the wagons, sort of anti-cultural uh, response. So in 1942, the National Association of Evangelicals was formed, and it was a protest. It was a protest both against modernity, primarily, but also against the excesses of fundamentalism. So just to recap where we've been, evangelical in the Reformation just meant Protestant. It meant non-Catholic. Evangelical in the 18th and 19th centuries meant a particular type of Protestant who stressed the need for regeneration and conversion and revival. But in the 20th century, to be evangelical meant that you were not only a Protestant who stressed the necessity of regeneration, but also that you disagreed with liberal theology and that you disagreed, or, or that, that you agreed with historic Orthodox theology, but you were distinguished from fundamentalism in regards to their approach to culture. So again, you see the connotation of the term evangelical is shifting. This is when you start to see evangelical used as a noun rather than an adjective, right? This is the first time you really begin to see that as being a, a common sort of thing. So someone wouldn't only say, Jeff is an evangelical Christian, you might then hear someone say, Jeff is an evangelical, period. So you have two groups of Christians in the early 20th century who are holding to a, a, a orthodox Protestant Christianity in America. But they have two very different approaches to the issue of culture and whether or not the best solution is to kind of separate and withdraw from the world or to engage it with faithful presence. And at the time, one of the litmus tests to kind of distinguish the fundamentalists from the evangelicals was none other than Billy Graham. Jared mentioned him a bit last week. Historian George Marsden writes that during the 1950s and the 1960s, the simplest definition of an evangelical was, quote, anyone who likes Billy Graham. 
And a fundamentalist was anyone who didn't like Billy Graham. Why didn't they like Billy Graham? Because he partnered with Catholics, because he partnered with mainline denominations and so forth. Fundamentalists thought that's a compromise. Remember, they developed very much this, if you're not with me on absolutely everything, you're my enemy sort of approach. So by the middle 20th century, being an evangelical generally meant that you, number one, were not theologically liberal, right? In other words, evangelicals were in particular distinguished from the mainline denominations. We talked about that when we talked about denominations, all right? The seven sisters of American Protestantism called the mainline denominations. Those mainline denominations are the American Baptist Churches USA, the Christian Church, also known as the Disciples of Christ, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Don't let the name evangelical fool you, though the name is evangelical. They don't actually believe the things that make one an evangelical today. They're using it very much just in the way that Luther used it as uh, as non-Catholic. Then the Presbyterian Church USA um, and the United Church of Christ and then the United Methodist Church. By and large, these mainline denominations, the seven sisters of American Protestantism, all of these sided with theological liberalism. All of those went over towards liberal theology rather than conservative theology. So they tend to be much more pluralistic. They tend to be uh, much less convinced on things like inerrancy. And they become, they become much more supportive of issues like uh, uh, female pastors or uh, homosexual pastors or whatever it might be. And uh, so you can see how they're just kind of adopting the assumptions of modernity because they've already kind of made their bed and been married to modernity. But that was the first thing that evangelical meant in the middle of the 20th century. It meant if you were evangelical in the early 20th century, you were not theologically liberal. Second thing it means in the middle 20th century, being an evangelical still meant that you were not a Catholic. Today, some Catholics call themselves evangelical, but in the middle of the 20th century, to be evangelical was to be Protestant. And then the last thing it meant in the early uh, to middle 20th century, it meant that you were not a fundamentalist, that you had some sort of disagreement with fundamentalism in their approach to culture or Billy Graham or, you know, music or alcohol or whatever it might be. So we see something really interesting that's happening here in this historic development. One of the things that we've noticed as we've studied church history over the past uh, year is that church history is, is really the story of this slow and steady fracturing of the church over the ages. The church is generally not getting more and more unified, it's getting less unified. So in 1054 AD, the church is split into these two branches, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Then in 1517, the Western church, the Roman Catholic church, is split such that there are now three branches, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and Presbyterian. Uh, I'm sorry, and, and Protestant. But Protestant was never this monolithic movement. It was fractured into various denominations almost immediately. So church history is really the story of continual fragmentation. But what's interesting is evangelicalism is a kind of means of reuniting what had been divided. It was interdenominational. It was worldwide. This was the form of Christian religion that was generally carried by American missionaries to the ends of the earth. It was the, there wasn't as much uh, Catholic missionary movement. There wasn't theologically liberal. By the way, there wouldn't be theologically liberal. Why? Because it's not exclusivistic. 
They think other countries, other cultures have their own means of salvation. We're Western, so we have uh, Christianity. And so it makes sense that it's only this conservative theology and in general evangelical theology that is being spread in the modern uh, mission movement. So go back to the opening illustration or or, uh, some of the talk about um, uh, evangelicalism. It's this broad, uh, think of evangelicalism kind of like an office building. It's an office building with which, uh, within which there are multiple denominations, multiple churches, multiple seminaries, and all of these can find some degree of unity. Some, there's something that unifies them. All right? that's, a, that's kind of the goal of evangelicalism. That's why there are organizations like Together for the Gospel, started by a guy named Mark Dever, who's a, a Baptist pastor, C.J. Mahaney, who's a Reformed charismatic, Al Moeller, who's a Baptist seminary president, and Ligon Duncan, who's a Presbyterian. I don't know how much you know about Baptists and Charismatics and Presbyterians, but them all being together, that sounds like a start of a good joke, right? A Baptist, a Charismatic, and a Presbyterian walk into a bar. Well, obviously the Baptists didn't go into a bar, but... So this, there is this kind of unification of what historically had been divided. Or another example of this more ecumenical approach uh, uh, that we see in evangelicalism is the friendship of a guy like John MacArthur with a guy like R.C. Sproul. And they're great friends, even though one is Baptist and the other is Presbyterian. How is that so? Because evangelicalism is an attempt to say that what unites us is more important than what divides us. Is baptism different? I'm sorry, is baptism important? Absolutely. Is church polity important? Absolutely. And that's what divides Baptists and Presbyterians by and large. But is that as important as the gospel or the nature of God? Of course not. By the way, I I think we're progressively losing that in our culture. I think that's a bad thing. We're losing the ability to appreciate and learn from those with whom we disagree. I think that's a big problem. And that's evangelicalism, though, is this attempt to focus on what unites us rather than what divides us. So George Whitfield, the famous revivalist of the First Great Awakening, he tells this anecdote. He tells a story um, in his sermons about a man who dies, and he meets St. Peter at the gate. I don't know why people always think St. Peter's at the gate. He's got the keys, so. And he asks if there are any Anglicans in heaven. That's what this guy asked Peter, and Peter says, no, sir. And, uh, and so all the Baptists and all the Presbyterians in the congregation, they, you know, they're clapping. They love it. They love the idea that you're, you know, giving the Anglicans a hard time. And then the man asks, well, are there any Presbyterians? And Peter says, no, sir, again. And then the Presbyterians in the audience would, you know, scowl disapprovingly. So then he asks, what about Baptists or Methodists or Congregationalists? And each time Peter said the same thing. So the, the man by this time is exasperated and says, well, then who is in heaven? Anyone want to guess what Peter said? He said, Christians. Christians are in heaven. And that's kind of the spirit of evangelicalism. It's an attempt to rally around what makes us Christian, to, to say, I identify with the label Christian, not just Baptist or Methodist or whatever it might be. Again, are those things important? Absolutely. But are they central? No. So starting in the 1940s, you have a number of these interdenominational evangelical institutions that are founded. Fuller Theological Seminary was founded as the first seminary that called itself evangelical. Christianity Today was founded as, quote, a magazine with evangelical convictions. 
It's when you get a number of evangelical parachurch ministries that are founded. And so that theological understanding of what it meant to be an evangelical pretty much prevailed through the 1940s, the 50s, and the 60s. But then in the 1970s in particular, the term evangelical begins to take on other connotations, many of which continue to today. Again, remember, the denotation of evangelical hasn't changed. It still just means of or relating to the gospel, but the connotation of the word has gone through serious changes. And you see that particularly in the latter part of the 20th century from the 1970s to today as that term becomes loaded with political baggage. Uh, remember, uh, historically, that word was just theological, but the reason it's today more political, you see that really begin to start in the 1970s. In common everyday usage as a result of this, the term evangelical today begins to imply less about someone's theological convictions and more about their political, cultural positions. It does so for a few reasons. This is not exhaustive. There's probably dozens of other things. It's just a sampling of a few reasons. First one, What hugely significant event happened in 1973 besides the birth of our own Carl Brower? Anyone know what happened in 1973 in American culture? Roe versus Wade, actually. Roe v. Wade. Watergate might have also happened then, but um, Roe v. Wade, all right? The constitutional right, quote-unquote, to abortion. Prior to this, most of the things that separated Republicans from Democrats were not explicitly biblical issues, right? It was more about size of the government and fiscal policy and so forth, which Christian worldview does have something to say about, but at the end of the day, those aren't explicitly moral uh, issues. So prior to the issue of abortion, um, prior to this, you could generally vote your conscience as a Christian for either political party, and you didn't have to compromise one bit on any sort of historic Christian conviction. But that begins to change when abortion becomes politicized and one party adopts it on its official platform. And so now for the first time in American political history, there is this political position with explicitly theological implications. So with the parties dividing on the issue of abortion, all of a sudden evangelicals much more clearly aligned with the Republican Party. That's why you get things like the moral majority and the religious right and so forth coming out of this, all right? I think that marriage between evangelicalism and the Republican Party has pros and cons. We'll discuss that later. But regardless, that's when this begins to happen. The second event that happened was for the first time in U.S. history, someone who identified as a born-again Christian, a, quote, evangelical, won the presidency. 1976, Jimmy Carter. This is a, uh, a watershed uh, moment in American political history. Prior to this, the overwhelming majority of presidents, presidents were uh, from mainline denominations. By the way, that's also true since then. Bush, Obama, Trump, all of those, they weren't raised in evangelical churches, but in churches connected to mainline denominations. But Carter at least self-identified as an evangelical. Now, when we talked about the traits of an evangelical, I think you might question whether Carter was actually evangelical. He didn't have very good views on Scripture and uh, exclusivity and so forth, but his self-identification was significant nonetheless. In fact, Time Magazine declared 1976, the year that Carter was elected, uh, they declared 1976 as the year of the evangelical. That was on their cover, the year of the evangelical. So that's a second factor that kind of leaves the term evangelical with a bit of political taste in the mouth today. A third factor is this is also the height of the Cold War, all right? 
That's another uh, factor. Why were evangelicals so resistant to communism? Because by its very nature, it's atheistic. There is no such thing as Christian communism. And so uh, that's another reason that uh, it, it begins to take on these political connotations. So all of this occurs in the 70s. And then you have the 80s in which Reagan and Bush are elected largely by the influence of evangelicals. So as a result of all these changes, the term evangelical began to, uh, to transition in common cultural usage from a term which designated one's religious convictions to one that describes one's political affiliations. Right? The result is that today, I think a lot of pollsters, a lot of journalists just kind of assume that an evangelical is someone who sits around wearing their MAGA hat looking at scrapbooks of Reagan and Jerry Falwell or something like that. That's unfortunate, and it's also untrue. Something else unfortunate also occurred in the later decades of the 20th century that stained the name, and that was a series of scandals. For instance, those of us who are old enough to remember the various televangelist scandals of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and so forth, and all of that kind of informs where we are today and how people think of the term Today, in general, the term evangelical is used derisively. It's seen as a political term rather than a theological term. And even when it's used theologically, there's still this baggage of a number of high-profile scandals that didn't just end in the 70s or the 80s, but have continued to today. As a result, there's a whole lot of contemporary confusion about the label. To the pastor, it might be a uh, denominational theological term. To the pollster, though it's a sociological term, and to the politician, it's a synonym for basically just a white Christian Republican. So that is uh, kind of the meaning and how it's changed over the years. Let's talk about the major evangelical organizations and leaders. Think of, uh, I used this illustration before, I didn't expound upon it, but think of evangelicalism kind of like a large office building. Right? And in that building, you have multiple businesses. Right? You have Dunder Mifflin, you have Vance Refrigeration, um, and uh, some of those sell paper, some sell disaster kits, some sell fridges. So there's lots of diversity among the different businesses, but all of those companies share something in common that is a common location. Well, evangelicalism is kind of like that. It's an association of different persons, different churches, different denominations, and all of them are diverse, and they have their, their uh, uh, unique identities, but nonetheless, they share something in common. And what's in common, at least in theory, is a shared understanding of the evangel, of the gospel. Not only in regards to what it means, but also in regards to its uh, necessity and its implications, what we are to do in light of it. So evangelicals disagree on a lot of things. They disagree on baptism, on predestination, on church governance, etc. But they agree, at least in theory, on the power and the purpose of the gospel as it relates to uh, orthodox theology and cultural engagement. So based on that, Evangelicalism today is a worldwide, interdenominational, informal movement of persons and groups who share a common understanding of the meaning, necessity, and work of the gospel. So who are some of the leading evangelicals today? That's a question that we want to answer. All right. Under the evangelical umbrella, you'd have various organizations, and a lot of these you've heard of before, the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, Nine Marks out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, the Southern Baptist Convention, the Presbyterian Church of America. Notice the PCUSA is a mainline denomination. The PCA, though, is an uh, uh, evangel uh, evangelical conservative 
denomination, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, the Evangelical Theological Society, and so forth. And then the list of evangelical pastors and theologians include guys like, uh, guys like J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul and John Stott and Billy Graham, all of those who are no longer with us. And then guys today, Carl Truman, John Piper, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, Matt Chandler, Al Moeller, John MacArthur, Doug Wilson, David Platt, Paul Washer, Kevin DeYoung, Tom Schreiner, Jared Lawson, all the great ones, you know. <laughs> Notice that's a, that's a pretty large canopy, right? You have Baptists, you have Presbyterians, you have Charismatics, you have non-Charismatics, you have Reformed and Arminian. Do I agree with all those guys on all things? Absolutely not. In fact, I'll offer some criticisms shortly of the movement. But do I consider all of those organizations and all of those uh, men uh, to be brothers and co-laborers in the kingdom who are generally helpful and good? Absolutely. So I want to conclude, though, by talking about some of the challenges that face evangelicalism and evangelicals, some of the weaknesses that are somewhat inherent to the movement that render it, I think, less effective than it could be, and then conclude by asking if the term is worth preserving and using. I came up with six challenges or critiques, could have listed more. Six is the biblical number of incompletion, so I thought it was fitting. Number one, political connotations. I think that's one of the challenges facing evangelicalism. All right, I said earlier there are pros and cons to the marriage between, the, uh, between evangelicals and the Republican Party. On the pros, I think it's obvious to anyone who has a Christian worldview that the platform of one party holds to views that are generally uh, more aligned with biblical values. That's true on issues of sexuality and the sanctity of life and identity politics and so forth. So that's on the pros. On the cons, though, there is also a tendency among some evangelicals to be, um, uh, to be not as critical of the right, to be a bit too political, to put too much hope in the political process, not enough hope in the gospel and the sovereignty of God, to think we can simply vote Christian values into existence. I think that's a, uh, that's a challenge, that's a critique. A second challenge is cultural derision, which goes along with the first, by and large, if you use the term evangelical, unless someone is an evangelical, it generally leaves a bad taste in their mouth. Why is that? It's not only because evangelicals tend to vote uh, Republican or something, but because we also tend to hold moral positions, which our culture hates. All right? it, our, our position on abortion, for instance, the evangelical, the, the biblical position on abortion, isn't just an issue on which the world says we can agree to disagree, Right? It's viewed as a violation of the sanctity of a woman's autonomy. There are these philosophical presuppositions. The same with our views on LGBTQ issues. Those aren't just areas of disagreement. According to the, uh, to the other side of the spectrum, those are threats to one's very person, to one's being, to one's identity. So, of course, culture is going to uh, despise evangelicals. What we believe is inherently offensive the prevailing cultural sentiments. We shouldn't be afraid of that. We should be cognizant of that. Jesus says the world is going to hate you, and we're seeing it. I think what, what the problem is is that a lot of us grew up in a time in which most of our neighbors and most of the surrounding culture actually agreed with us on most major moral issues, even if they weren't Christian, and that's no longer the case today. A third critique of evangelicalism is that it seems to be operating on a number of secular assumptions. Not just secular, but actually anti-Christian presuppositions. 
It, ironically, it seems like evangelicalism today has adopted many of the theories that are associated with modernism. That's ironic because it grew out of fundamentalism, which is a reaction to modernism, a rejection of modernism, and yet I think it has slowly imbibed those various, very theories. All right? For instance, most evangelical churches, what's their goal? Their goal is church growth. Their goal is just what works. And what does that reflect? What well, reflects that those churches have bought into the modern ideal of pragmatism. That's a modernist philosophy. When churches are run like a corporation rather than a congregation, that's a reflection that the church has been too influenced by culture. When sermons become just some sort of illustrative, alliterative attempt to meet the felt needs of the people, you do these five things and you won't be anxious, or you do these five things and you'll have a healthy marriage, or your kids will be great, or you'll get rich quick or something. Remember one of the things we said about liberalism is that rather than focusing on historic orthodox theology, it stresses morality and feelings and social work and personal experience. Are all those things good? Yes. Are they the center? Are they what's ultimate about Christianity? No. But I think anyone who's familiar with evangelical Twitter or Facebook today, recognizing that is evangelical theology or evangelical Christianity is focused on morality, feeling, social work, personal experience. It hasn't, uh, uh, it hasn't necessarily bought into theological liberalism but it certainly adopted many of the assumptions of modernity. Fourth, related to that, a critique is the theological uh, vacuity or emptiness of much of evangelicalism. Again, this is a reflection of the fact that it has married itself to modernity and has this adulterous affair with pragmatism. If you read, quote-unquote, Christian books from 200 or 500 or 1,000 years ago, they're typically meaty, they're substantive, that isn't the case today. For most of church history, sermons and songs and books and so forth, they require deep thought. Today, they're, they're rather innocuous. They're unchallenging. They're unconvicting. They're not God-centered. They're kind of man-centered. They're self-help, uh, what uh, a sociologist has called moralistic therapeutic deism. So historically, engaging in the, the theological process was kind of like chewing a piece of meat, right? You've got to kind of work it around a bit. But today, most of what passes for evangelical thought is like candy. It just kind of melts in your mouth. There's no chewing necessary. So David Wells, who's a, a theologian who has written a handful of books criticizing this tendency of evangelicalism has given this excellent illustration. He says that evangelicalism today is like uh, ticker tape that's thrown at uh, ticker tape parades. Those millions of tiny pieces of paper just floating in the air. He says they have no substantive value, right? They simply provide this level of entertainment, all right? But they leave a mess in their wake. He says that's your average evangelical church sermon. That's your average evangelical song. That's your average evangelical book, etc. It might be fun, but it's frivolous. It's fleeting. And that leads us to the fifth critique, which is anti-intellectualism. I've mentioned this quote a number of times, but years ago, Mark Knoll, church historian, wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, and the opening sentence kind of sums up the book well. He says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. In fact, it seems, what's interesting is that much of evangelicalism holds this anti-intellectualism 
and lack of theological precision as a virtue. That's not something that they, you know, regretfully embrace. That's something that they are proud of. The head is separated from the heart, and the heart is exalted at the expense of the head. People are proud to be squishy. That's seen of a sign of maturity. Any sort of theological conviction is viewed as a sign of pride, of arrogance. That's a fifth challenge facing evangelicalism. Sixth, final one that I'll offer is the ambiguous borders of the evangelical camp. I've mentioned before, one of the, uh, the underlying overarching goals of the movement is to kind of make the ecclesiastical tent or office building as large as possible. But in doing so, that ends up opening the door a bit too wide and allowing people in who shouldn't be allowed in. For instance, in its statement of faith, the National Association of Evangelicals, it affirms the Trinity, that's great. It affirms the deity of Christ, that's great. It affirms the necessity of supernatural rebirth, that's great. But there's no mention of justification by grace alone through faith alone, which is the very heart of what Martin Luther would say is the gospel itself. So technically, you could be an evangelical and not hold to the very heart of how Protestants have viewed the gospel. I've even seen a list of evangelicals that include guys like Joel Osteen or T.D. Jakes or Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland, dozens of others that I think greatly compromise the gospel. Evangelicalism doesn't have this pope who tells us who's in and who's out, and, uh, and I think that can be a problem. The goal of unity can be a weakness and, uh, and so, the, the term has taken on a bit of baggage today. Let me just conclude, uh, we're a little bit over on time, sorry about that, uh, by asking if it's worth it, all right? Is it worth it to retain the term? At the end of the day, I don't care. If you call yourself an evangelical or not, it doesn't matter to me. But I think we can kind of redeem the term rather than just simply rejecting it. And I want to give two reasons. The first reason being, I don't think it's good for us to allow culture to dictate to us what we mean by certain terms. Uh, And so, uh, when it comes to being a Baptist, yes, some people think Baptist means that you don't drink and you don't dance and you don't play cards and whatever else it might mean. They might think it means that you're judgmental or arrogant or whatever it might mean. That's not what we mean by it. I don't have any problem being called a Baptist. Same thing when it comes to a Calvinist or whatever it might be. The fact that some people misuse the term or abuse the term doesn't mean that I can't redeem it. So that's the first reason. The second reason that I think it's worth fighting for is because it's not merely an American label today. I mentioned before, this is the form of Christianity that moves forth from America to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and so as a result of that, most evangelicals today aren't American. That's one of the interesting things about why uh, it's ironic that the term has such political connotations because most evangelicals don't vote Republican. Why not? Because they're not even American. And so uh, you're looking at it uh, uh, globally, Uganda sees like 13,000 converts per year uh, in the evangelical tradition. About 40% of uh, their people, 40% of the country identifies as evangelical. In Africa as a whole, there's been an 800% increase in evangelical Anglicanism since the 80s, both Guatemala and Chile, Chile are 40% evangelical. Korea, though it's never been under European rule, is almost a majority evangelical country. In China, there are more evangelicals than Communist Party members. In fact, 
Uh, a lot of projections say that China may soon be the world's leading, have the world's leading number of evangelicals. So I think it's not a title we should be embarrassed by. I don't think it's one that we need to necessarily discard. I think that we can redeem it as long as we are uh, being very clear what we mean. We mean that an evangelical is someone who is regenerated by, who's passionate about the, the gospel, and, uh, and that wants that good news to affect the world so the glory of God covers the earth like waters cover the sea. Sorry, we don't have time for questions. If you have any questions, feel free to, uh, to email or come and chat, and uh, we'd love to, uh, to help. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Just a reminder, if you have a kid who is in elementary, elementary uh, equipping right now, wait until 1015 to pick them up because their class is not over yet. Father, we're grateful again for your love for us. Just confess that uh, the camp or the label or the tradition that we are associated to has some issues. And so I pray for your help. I pray that there would be, uh, as evangelicalism historically was tied to revival, I pray that there would be revival even within evangelicalism. That some of the pragmatism and some of the emptiness and, and, and some of the, the dearth of, of depth and so forth, that you would uh, help us to see and repent of. And, uh, and I pray for greater revival, not only within our camp, um, but uh, to the ends of the earth. And so we love you. We're grateful for your love for us that's on display, uh, even in uh, the study of uh, a broken and fallible people. Pray that you prepare our hearts as we go forth from here and we gather and pray and sing and read your word and so forth. Help us because we need it. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming.